When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did. This is The Final Word, episode 23 of season 7, which is something that we didn't remember and had to look up before the show. No surprise, Jeff Lemon here, Adam Collins with me, and we're about to set sail into the seas of cricketing adventure around the world, where we are, where you are. Today on the show, our wrap of the Women's T20 World Cup so far at almost the end of the group stages. Uh, We're going to hear from Daniel Norcross personally later in the show. He's recorded his World War II segment for us so that I don't have to do an impersonation of him. We're going to have a look at what's happening in South Africa with the Australian men's team in New Zealand with India and the test matches, the good old Sheffield Shield, uh, Nerd Pledge and a, a range of other bits and pieces that will come through the show, the Seabus Super Performer. And uh, also thanks to everybody for getting in touch with us about the Thailand episode. We've had a lot of nice feedback on that episode where we spoke to three members of the Thai cricket team. Um, you can find that if you scroll back one in the feed. But the first thing that I need to do to start the show today is to welcome Adam Collins and to ask him for the latest Winnie updates. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll also thank uh, everyone for writing in about the Thailand episode. I, I listened back to it the other day and, um, yeah, I, I was sad not to have been part of that interview, but um, you did a great job there and, uh, yeah, I'm glad it was so well received. Uh, the good thing about a podcast is you have the, the, the time and scope to, to go away and, and do these things from time to time and we've always enjoyed that on The Final Word, having that, that breadth. So, um Yes, thank you again. Uh, Winnie update. Well, I think she's realised that she's here. Uh, she's 17, mm. no, sorry, 16 days old today, and I think she's just realised that if she yells, not only will it result in her getting fed, but it'll, it'll result in attention. She needs to be held at all times. Uh-oh. Not um, so um, that, that's, uh, that's increasing the degree of difficulty somewhat, but I'm, I'm only complaining um, because I, I haven't slept in a couple of nights. Really, it, it's a joy every day, even... The, um, even the tough bits are great. I think we're still well and truly in the baby bubble, which I'm expecting will burst in about, say, two or three weeks from now, and, and the reality mm-hmm. of what we have ahead of us will kick in. But for, for the time being, uh, <laughs> she's the best. So I had her watching the cricket again this week. Uh, she We had uh, Izzy Westbury and Vatushan Hantaraja, two dear friends of the final word, came around for breakfast yesterday to meet Winnie. Uh, and, and Winnie was there um, watching the, the uh, would have been the England-West Indies uh, group game on the telly with us, and she was enjoying herself, so... It might be a sign of things to come, uh, or it might not. She, she, as I said the other week, she might hate cricket, and that's fine as well. But we're loving being parents, loving every bit of it. 
Well, before we get stuck into the show today, we did say that from time to time throughout the year, you'd be getting some updates from another friend of the show, <laughs> Sonny Munn. We learned by happenstance a couple of days ago, it was the Big Day Not Out in Melbourne, which is the, the, the lightning knockout competition, the premiership for the pub cricket league in Melbourne. And, and we heard about this because Sonny Munn had just turned in one hell of a performance bowling the final over of a 10 over game I think he had a dozen to defend off the last over obviously everything was was everyone was swinging for the fences and it came down to needing to defend one run from the final ball uh, conceding a single would have meant a tie conceding a two would have meant a loss so he had one run to defend and then uh, luckily friend of the show Ben Rennick was on the spot to find out what happened next so I'm here with Sonny Munn defending eight off the last over in the semi-final of the big day not out the Vic Hotel against the Clyde Sonny can you talk us through that last over mate how long have you got (laughs) honestly uh, the boundaries were tiny it was a postage stamp I, you could have got eight off one, honestly. It was that small. Nah, same dimensions as the G, apparently, and they scampered through for a few twos. I think I snagged one early, and then there was a bit of conjecture coming down towards the death as to whether they needed one or two. There was a count back. There was a lot of consternation from the sidelines about one or two, but it ended up being two from the last ball. There you was. came in, top of your mark. What did you do? Well, there was one from the last ball, and there was consternation on the sideline and constipation from my fellow teammates because I think they'd indulged in a few uh, substances they shouldn't have. And... Uh, Thought consternation aside, best just to hit the top of off, and thankfully the bar went off. I ended up halfway to Abbotsford celebrating like a goose, and uh, now that I've given this interview before the final, I'm sure we'll get skittled within about five overs, so thanks for jinxing me. Thanks, Sonny. Good luck in the final. Cheers, Digger. So that was the story of Sonny Munn that I was getting on the day. You were also getting updates on the day, I believe. <laughs> yeah, well, Dan Toomey, another friend of uh, a friend of ours and White Line Wireless colleague from yesteryear, uh, said he sent me a photo of Sonny batting, and I'll, I'll post it at some point. He's wearing... Um, well, evidently what he described as a pair of Barbados green denim trousers batting, bare feet, um, no shirt, uh, nor would you wear a shirt if you look like Sonny, oiled up skin, I'm sure, um, wearing a cap and striding down the track, as he as he writes here, roaming the synthetic pitches of the Yarra Pub Cricket Association, <laughs> shirtless, shoeless, padless, and sporting a grey Nichols power spot. It, that really does um, sum up Sonny, Sonny Man, and I loved hearing him uh, in that brief dispatch there. Uh, but it went... South, So they won the semi-final, they got on the piss, and then the final didn't go so well. Well, so, so this was, I think he's playing for the Vic versus the Rainbow. And as he said himself in the interview, um, things weren't likely to go well after he gave that interview after the semi. But in the final, he was also bowling the last over to defend the score. It came down to the last ball again. Uh, four needed from the last ball to win. And he was hit for six to lose the game, <laughs> to lose the final um, to, to, the, to the Rainbow. So congrats to the Rainbow. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, as he went into some detail to explain and, 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 uh, and Toomes uh, reinforced that boundaries as big as the MCG and he's been clouted mm-hmm. for six to lose the, to lose the pub premiership. So, oh, well, can't win them all, but uh, it, it provides him with yet another remark anecdote in fairly, well, not fairly, a very eventful life. <laughs> I think the cones are a bit further in than the fence usually um, at, at the Edinburgh <laughs> Cricket Club in Fitzroy, in North Fitzroy there in Melbourne. So um, the surface size isn't entirely Great used. Club. Yes, um, Richard Hines is deeply involved at that club, I believe, yes. sports running yep. colleague of ours. So the Women's T20 World Cup, the group stages are almost over. We're recording before the last day, partly just to make sure we can get this out before the semi-finals. Um, what happens on the last day won't have a huge bearing in that it's Thailand-Pakistan, which won't 
uh, change any of the standings in Pool A. And then South Africa, West Indies, which could change the standings in Group B. At the moment, South Africa are second on net run rate, but if they beat West Indies, they'll go top. Mm. And that could be really relevant, Adam, because the weather forecast for Sydney in Thursday is absolutely terrible. It's it's huge rain forecast um thunderstorms likely in the morning rain through the afternoon and evening the semis could be washed out altogether which would mean that the top ranking sides would go through to the finals there's no reserve day despite the fact that nothing's happening on the friday and nothing's happening on the saturday there's no reserve day for the semi-finals so that would mean india would go through to the final and this game that South Africa has against the West Indies could um, c- could change who goes through to that final automatically, whether it's England or South Africa. Yeah, it feels like we're having a very similar conversation to the one that we had around the Big Bash final a, a few weeks ago. I mean, I know they got on in that game and that's a great result, but it feels a bit ropey that this wasn't considered. Uh, there are a lot of days of professional cricket rained off in Sydney for whatever reason. Bad luck. Um, you know, I'm not trying to say there's more rain in Sydney than other parts of the country, but um, there is. You know, I mean, well, well, meteorologically, there definitely is. there are more rain okay, days and sure. there's more volume. Uh, I, I, this, all I'm trying to say is, is that you, you shouldn't sort of work on the assumption there will be rain. But in a finals setup where there is mm. a day, indeed, there's two days between uh, the semi-final and, and when they be due to play in Melbourne. I know it wouldn't be the ideal prep if they had to play a semi-final on Friday and, and travel on the Saturday and, and play on the Sunday. But needs must. I, I would have thought, even in the scenario of double headers and the other quirk mm. there is that normally in a T20 it's five overs to constitute a game evidently in the playing conditions for the semi-finals to be to be games to be on not be rained out they need to have 10 overs per side in this in these semi-finals so um, yeah. Andrew McGlashan from Crick Info popped that up on Twitter earlier today so there's a couple of um, bits to watch for there uh, I was observing to a colleague of ours uh, earlier this evening that South Africa are, are, are a fairly Uh, quirky side um, uh, euphemistically I say I mean they're not known for having the greatest discipline frankly this particular team um, in in a lot of different ways (laughs) but um, but the thing is so and and that's part of their charm I, I bloody love following this African team. I think they're, they're, they're joyous in, in many respects. Um, but they're just as likely now to go and win the tournament as they are to get bowled out for 60 by the West Indies tomorrow. You know what I mean? And if they were to get bowled out for 60 tomorrow, they'll finish second in the group, which, as you say, could mean they get eliminated without even playing a semi-final. We don't, I don't mm. want to invest too much time in that. Hopefully, you know, the forecast gets better. And we saw the SCG ground staff do a magnificent job to get on uh, in that BBL decider last month. But it is a consideration for South Africa going into to that final game, they would have otherwise been in a situation where they could have almost gamed it because they know that India have finished top and Australia have finished second. I mean, I'm not trying to say they would be better off finishing second in order to cop India, but playing Australia um, with home ground advantage, uh, that, that may have factored into their thinking. It, it, even if I'm not saying they would have attempted to lose, but sometimes psychologically it can affect the way that a team prepares uh, when winning isn't essential. Uh, mm. But yes, now that, that changes everything. That, that, that won't be a consideration with top spots so valuable. And, and, and if you were going into a game to try to lose to the West Indies, it would require an incredible effort to lose to that team. Like, you would, mm. you would have to go above and beyond to try to lose to the West Indies. You'd have to be 
chopping your own toes off with a spade out in the middle to I mean they were just absolutely <laughs> dismal against England the other night they've been dismal for the whole tournament yeah. and uh, yeah look I, I suppose we'll, we might get to that briefly later on but uh, off the top we should look at Australia's win over New Zealand it was today as we're recording this it's Monday night where I am Monday morning where you are it might be Tuesday or Wednesday by the time this show gets out but um, look at Australia racked up a big score 155 for 5 held New Zealand four runs short but it, it wasn't really as close as that indicates there were mm. they needed 15 from the last two balls which meant that they couldn't win without um, wides and, and no balls and so a six and a four from the last couple of balls made it look close but there was a fair bit of distance um, Ash Gardner bowled the first four balls of that over well enough to kill the game and, and then the last two mm. didn't really matter yeah, that, that's right. I mean, it, it was probably a, a more competitive game than than it felt in the last three or four overs after Megan Shoot took wickets in consecutive balls in, I think it might have been the 15th over or something like that, um, which kind of felt like it killed off the chase. Um, uh, New Zealand needed 28 runs from the last two overs, and, and I think that was the same equation when they played India a couple of days ago, but the difference there being they were only three wickets down or four wickets down, and Amelia Kerr was finding her stride, and they were facing Poonam Yadav, and they found a way to succeed against her, and we might come to that in a bit when, when we touch on India, but this was different. They'd lost more wickets. They'd, the, 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 the wind had gone completely out of the sails, if you like, and um, and it was a formality that Australia would win. But it was an entertaining first innings. Australia were, were asked to bat. And, and even though you look at it now in hindsight and say 155 is a really good score on what was a really slow and low track, and, and it was, and Beth Mooney's half century was exceptional. Uh, I found it interesting, Jeff, that she struck uh, sixes in consecutive overs when you look at the Big Bash this year, and we, we mm. talked about this uh, a, couple, a few weeks ago, she struck only two sixes across 746 runs in that campaign um, to be second on the run scorers list and then did it twice in, in the space of five minutes uh, in, in the game today. But no, she she controlled things and it meant that even though no other Australian player made more than 21 four players went between 19 and 21 Lanning getting out at kind of an annoying time and uh, and Perry falling kind of after doing her job with Rachel Haynes who batted really well at the death and between times Gardner batted through the middle overs made 20 from 20 balls it, it, it was enough because she they didn't lose wickets in, in clumps and, that, and that's what New Zealand did they lost wickets in in clumps and, and we know often in T20 cricket that's the that's the that can be the the be all and end all of a situation mm. because you, you you suddenly have got two new players at the crease it's harder to rotate the strike you have a couple of uh, sort of frugal overs from the bowling side and and you find it hard to come back and that's kind of what happened in the batting innings so yeah four runs is the margin but it felt like slightly more than that and you know it, it, it's easy to, to sort of point the finger at Bates and Devine for not making the runs they would have needed to and they've been such vital match winners for this side for, for such a long time but probably New Zealand's depth has been exposed more than anything else with the bat in this tournament I, I, Matty Green I should add batted exceptionally well uh, today uh, once Divine fell but across the board um, when it's not Divine and it's not Bates it's hard to find a, a realistic third route to victory with the bat and again that, that's been shown up in this tournament Yeah I thought the issue with Sophie Divine wasn't that she didn't make a huge score but just that she batted too slowly through the, the power play especially and afterwards she was 31 off 36 she faced I think 16 dot balls before she got out and you just can't afford to do that. I didn't. I didn't understand what her approach was. She seemed tentative and conservative. She she batted that way in the previous couple of matches as well. Um, you know, when when she'd 
she, I think she got 14 a couple of times, but just wasn't trying to impose herself as an opener. And it seems to me like the reason she's up there at the top of the order is is to do what she did for the Adelaide Strikers, to, to come out and score fast from the from the get-go to try to put pressure on immediately. When you need eight and over in a chase, you've got to get out ahead of that chase. And instead, what she did was ensure that they were behind the chase from the start. And so the players coming in after her who batted well, like Maddie Green and Katie Martin, had too much to do um, because they'd been left too big a task by the senior players. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's right. Uh, but I just would add a, a couple of mitigating points to that. One is that she certainly was trying to score. She just kept hitting fielders. She couldn't get the ball off the square. So it was one of those days that, that a batter will have uh, and I suppose the other point there is that Devine's game is a bit like Chris Gales in, in the bloke's side of the ledger where she does occupy the crease for a lot of dot balls and then explodes in a cluster after she's very much in. She isn't the sort of player that comes out and, and tends to clear the pickets from, from the outset. It, it takes a while for her to sort of shift through the gears and um, yeah, so I, I see your point that in the power play you want to get ahead of it but that might just be a case of the fact that you know in this particular chase she might have been better suited coming in down the track but you don't want to twist on 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 your opening bats in the middle of a essentially a quarterfinal or quasi quarterfinal and and I guess the other point there is that the sort of pressure that Divine and Bates carry into every innings like knowing that if not them then who will it be uh, it, it must be challenging psychologically uh, knowing that and, and I mean with Amy Satterthwaite not there as well like if, if Satterthwaite was there at least as a third cog and I know that there were other contributors today but across the board typically I mean Amelia Kerr for example she made runs against India a mm. couple of days ago and, and we were lauding her for you know a, a most resourceful innings that nearly dragged them over the line against India but it's worth remembering that her highest score in T20 internationals before that I think it was 15 right. so the point there of course being that Notwithstanding the fact that Amelia Kerr holds the world record for the highest score in a, a one-day international, she has not performed in T20 international cricket for New Zealand. Uh, yeah. So if you're someone like Devine or Bates who have these prolific records at domestic level and in the case of uh, Bates, the number one ranked T20 player in the world, that's a lot to carry on your shoulders knowing that if not you, then who? Yeah, there's not there's not a whole lot to come and, and probably those mm. to come batted above themselves. There wouldn't be many days where you'd see Katie Martin bat as decisively as she did. But, um, mm. you know, like I said, she those couple of boundaries she hit late makes her innings look a lot better than it was whereas in that last couple of overs when the game was on the line there were a lot of singles and you know balls dragged away straight to fielders in the deep um, that where she couldn't get them away the the really big news out of that match is that Elise Perry's probably done for the tournament uh, it looked like mm. she'd done a hamstring badly she you know we haven't had news confirmation of that yet but she went down holding the hamstring she went off looking distraught and so you can join the dots from there um, it's a it's a horrible thing for her she's played every game that Australia's ever played in a T20 World Cup or in a World T20 dating right back to the first one in 2009 she's literally never missed a match and now it's at the point where you know if Australia don't get rained off and if they did make the final she wouldn't be able to be there to play um, but I, the, the converse thing that I was pondering is that it's a, it's a huge loss for her personally. It's not necessarily a huge loss for Australia, the team, because I don't think they've been using her very effectively or getting much out of her in this tournament. So it, it's a strange thing where they could lose probably the best player in the world and not have it actually hurt their campaign too much. 
Yeah, I, I feel for her because this marquee landmark event, which it'll be if they make the MCG final, the point you make about having played in every game uh, in, a, in a World T20 over seven tournaments and then to miss what will, you know, if they make the final, what will almost certainly be um, the, the moment of a lot of, lot of their careers. Um, for her not to be there would be cruel. The balance of the Australian side has, has been interesting to me for a while. I reckon they might have overdone the depth thing uh, in that they're, they're, they're really bulked up on players that can do lots of things because T20 cricket, you look at the West Indies men's side, which won the title in, in 2012 and 2016, and they were defined by the fact that they had four all-rounders um, who, if one of the four came off in the big moments, well, you win the game of cricket, right? Mm. And I think that Australia have, have, have gone down that path, and the best example of that is the fact that Annabelle Sutherland has had a thanks for coming today, so didn't bat and didn't bowl, and she didn't bowl against India in the first game of the tournament, so I mm-hmm. suppose what you would call the other important game of the group stage. She wasn't trusted to bowl, so she did bowl against Bangladesh, but was dropped for the Sri Lanka game in between times, and she's coming in to bat at number eight. Now, my way of thinking is is that this is a similar affliction to what England had batting Lauren Winfield down at eight earlier in the tournament Mm. as well. They're they're bulking up on the batting, but the the trade-off there is you don't get an extra specialist bowler, and maybe Perry leaving the side will will prompt that rethink and knowing they need to have another specialist bowler. Um, who they choose to then bring into the squad, well, that's a whole different story. Where this might get quite interesting as well, Jeff, and I popped something on Twitter about this before, is that if Perry doesn't come up from her fitness test that I'm sure she'll go through and scans and so on, and they bring a replacement player in, which they're permitted to do in the regulations with the tournament. Sarah Coit, uh, retired from international cricket and domestic cricket. She made a comeback to domestic cricket and dominated in a WBBL. If they want another specialist seamer, uh, with international experience, big game experience, having won a couple of WBBL titles, there'd be worse shouts than getting on the phone to Sarah Coit and asking her mm-hmm. to come out of retirement for a week. Look, it probably won't happen. I, I'd imagine they'll they'll, they'll look, look at other options first um, for a number of reasons, not least the fact that these tracks are so slow that I doubt they'll be looking for another seamer. But if, if, I, if it were me and I was seeing Nicola Carey and Annabelle Sutherland who are both playing those in-between roles um, versus having a specialist seamer to, to effectively replace Perry's four overs, I think they're, they're sorted for batters, frankly, and that would mean that yeah. you, can, you can go in with one fewer bat, you know, um, high-profile batter and even the fact that Coit can whack the ball. I've seen him make domestic half centuries before she's done well with the blade in the WBBL when she's been called upon too. So I reckon that that's an unlikely but, but quirky one to keep an eye on. And the other one is Delisa Kimmins. I mean, I thought Kimmins was Australia's best bowler against India. I don't know whether mm. her figures reflected it. I can't remember, but she bowled really well. And then she was dropped after that, didn't play against Sri Lanka, didn't play against Bangladesh, didn't play today against New Zealand. Uh, she was a world champion two years ago. And the fact that the pitches are slow suits her game. A number of slow mm. balls. She's quicker than Jenny Gunn, but kind of like that Jenny Gunn player who who does tend to excel when the conditions are holding up and you have to bowl it into the track. And I wonder whether there'll be a temptation to get Kimmins back in for the semi-final at the SCG because I don't expect we're going to get a track which will be quick like we had at the Wacker or, or, or batter-friendly as it was at Canberra. Let's have a look at a couple of the other teams. South Africa are a side that... I'm. I know you. You find them entertaining, and I'd agree with that. But I, I'm not convinced by them purely because of. You look at their top six, and and it's almost entirely made up of of all rounders who who feel 
kind of bits and pieces to me with the bat. I mean, they're, they're more bowling all-rounders. So Dane Vanekirk opening, Marazan Cap's been batting first drop, Mignon Dupria in there, Sune Luce in there. They've all been batting in the top six for, for most of this tournament. And I guess I look at that and I, I don't see a batting lineup. I see a lot of players who I'd quite like to have coming in at six or seven or eight in, in my T20 team, but I don't necessarily see a top six. And and, and, mm. I, and But maybe it's working. Like, it, it, it's worked pretty well so far in this tournament. It just feels like a, a, tech, a, a tactic that might break down at the crucial moment. Look, and it has before. The, the South African machine has broken down at frustrating times before, uh, not least that bilateral series in England a couple of years ago when they started with a win then lost like nine games on the trot. It was a complete disaster because it just all the wheels fell off and they're very susceptible uh, to that. But, and, and the World Cup two years ago in the West Indies when uh, they they were routed for 70-odd by the West Indies and not much better against England and, and sort of went home with tails between legs after doing so well uh, in the 50-over World Cup the year before that, so high expectations. But, look, I, I think they, having beaten England in the opening weekend, so right, let, let's remember they had the two high-profile games in each group to start the group, so... Uh, for Australia, they had to win everything. For England, they had to win everything. But for India, they've kind of been in cruise control. And the same applies to South Africa. They were never going to lose to, realistically, they were never going to lose to Thailand. They, they were probably never going to lose to Pakistan, although it must be said Pakistan um, did do superbly against the West Indies since the last time we talked. But the point is is that the, the South African draw was set up in such a way that Everything was front-loaded. And having won that game, look at what happened since. Lazelle Lee makes 100. Uh, Sune Luce gets elevated to number three because Marazan Cat was out ill for a game. So she got a chance to uh, get some time in the middle, get into the tournament, made 61 not out of 40 balls. And lo and behold, bowled really well after that. Now, we know Sune Luce is a... You know, takes loads of wickets with half trackers and full tosses, like in the best traditions of league spinners. Perhaps more than most, though, she has a real reputation for that. So I don't trust her with the ball, but she can be a bit of a golden arm wild card type operator. But bowled really nicely in, since that day where she made runs first. So she's in the competition. Laura Wolver didn't need to bat in the first two games, then mm. comes in at number five against Pakistan and plunders four boundaries in her final eight balls, makes 53 not out. So she's in the tournament. Uh, Shabnim Ismail, uh, again, you know, a, a player of incredible capacity, but can blow hot and cold. She took three for eight on a hat trick at one stage, I think it was, uh, against against Pakistan. So, so she's in the tournament. Cap's now back in the team, made runs at number three uh, in, in their last group game. And I think uh, counterintuitively, a positive is the fact that Vanny Kirk, who's their best player, hasn't really made a run in the tournament. So we know her ceiling's quite high. She's made big runs against quality opposition consistently. So even though, as you say, it doesn't necessarily look on paper like the strongest team in the comp, they've got players in form at the right time having done so after winning the big game at the start to give them confidence. So, look, I think it's a danger game for Australia. I expect Australia will draw them in the semi. Uh, and, it, look, it's, it's a bit of a free hit for South Africa because, um, you know, every semi-final in a World Cup has pressure. But if they're playing Australia, no one will expect them to win. Uh, and, and that makes them dangerous. I think we have a similarly divergent view on England. I'm, I'm not on in England in this tournament. I, I don't like the look of them. I don't like what's going on with them. They're all very nice people. I mean, they're, but they're, their order looks weird. They've spent this tournament with two openers who are badly out of form, two other openers batting at number seven and eight most of the time. Everything batting-wise has been reliant on Nat Siver and Heather Knight and 
they've had to make the runs in every game so far. They shifted that batting order in their most recent game against the Windies. Tammy Beaumont came up, got a second ball duck. You know, that can happen. Mm. Amy Jones looked a lot better coming mm. in down the mm. order at six really with the good. pressure off her. Suddenly she was, she was batting better. But yeah, yeah. I still feel like this is a team where if, if Heather Knight or Nat Siver don't make the runs, then they potentially don't have a score. And, and Catherine Brunt up top with the ball isn't, particularly convincing at the moment either she's she just looks to be a a few yards slow and, and a bit too easy to hit at the moment even though Anya Shropsell's bowling well as her, her long-term partner so there are a lot of things about that England team that I just don't think work yeah look I, well, I would say the positive side of that coin is they identified the problem and made a change so I mentioned before that Winfield batting at eight Beaumont as the finisher so she floated between six and seven with Brunt having the ability to go up the order which she did against South Africa they kind of fixed that so Jones, out of form, um, still a quality player, you know, arguably on a par with Healy as the best stumper in the world as well, and they need her to keep for them. There's no one else, and they've got three spinners operating at the moment, all going very well, and we'll come to that in a sec. But uh, so there, was, there was no way Jones was being dropped, notwithstanding some of the more hysterical takes on Twitter. So Jones getting shuffled down made sense. Beaumont going back to the top of the order made sense. And, you know, as you say, that can happen. The first ball that Beaumont faced, or sorry, it might have been the first ball White faced, bounced three times before reaching the keeper at that absolute shit heap they prepared at the showground. So Beaumont walked down the track. She overbalanced, fell over, got pinged, so be it. But that looks a more sturdy batting lineup. And the fact that Knight and Siver are in top form is, is a great problem, if it is a problem, really. Siver's made three half centuries and a 35, so there's no one in the comp with uh, more runs than her. Knight, of course, made 100 against Thailand, which you can you can sort of wait as you will, but, uh, but batted uh, nicely at other points during the tournament. She was the player of the match against Pakistan, I think I'm right in saying, for 60-odd in that fixture. So I think that's the engine room. Uh, Nat, Nat Siver and, and Catherine, uh, Nat Siver rather, and, and Heather Knight are, are going pretty nicely. And, and Danny White, I mean, she's never been a consistent player. Um, it, although her last couple of years have been more consistent, she is the sort of more enigmatic match winner type. So White's just as likely to get out second ball as she is to make a blazing 50-ball time. We, we know that. We, we price that in. So White, and, White and, um, and Beaumont up top, followed by that engine room, as I mentioned before. Then some flexible as you work your way down the order and having brought in the extra bowler with Matty Villiers who bowled really well um, the other night albeit after the damage had been done by Sophie Eccleston whose reputation continues to improve uh, with every outing I think she's the best bowler in the world at the moment and Sarah Glenn whose leg spinners have been really effective in tandem with Eccleston so I agree look it doesn't I'm not saying they are the best team in the world but I feel like they've They've found a combination which is working for them now, having dropped the first game. Uh, they've got their, their batting order where it should be. They've reshuffled um, a, a batter for a bowler to look stronger in the bowling department so they have more flexibility with who they choose to use in the death overs and so forth. And again, like they'll almost certainly play India, and that's another point to this. India in 2018 went through the group stage uh, without losing a game, it's often forgotten that they pumped Australia in the last group game in the 2018 tournament. It was a dead rubber. They were both going through, but still they, they came in full of confidence to play England in the semi. And England prepared to face Poonam Yadav, their assistant coach, Ali 
Kylie Maiden was on his hands and knees bowling to them in the nets um, to replicate her um, trajectory and, and they took her apart. Amy Jones on that occasion on a really, really slow surface uh, was able to do the job for England and I think Sophie Eccleston with the ball. So they'll feel confident that even though they'll be the two seed and India will be the one seed, that they've done this before. They're more experienced on the big stage. A slew of players in that 11 who've won a World Cup at Lords a few years ago. And look, I think that of the four semi-finalists, you know, I probably think Australia are still the most likely to win the tournament and England are the second most likely to win the tournament. That's how I'd view it coming in. India played 4-1-4, as you said. I think the thing that stands out for me is that they've beaten two good teams in Australia and New Zealand by batting first and defending. This Mm. Indian team recently, the last couple of years, have always looked more comfortable chasing when they know what they have to score and and tend to look more at sea when they bat first. So the fact that they were able to win batting first I thought was significant. Shefali Verma up top, making runs quickly. She's made 29, 39, 46 and 47 of her scores and, and they've all come at much better than a runner ball. So that helps get them off to that start. Poonam Yadav, 4 for 19 against Australia, 3 for 18, 1 for 32, 1 for 20. Her bowling performances so far. Radha Yadav, the orthodox spinner, picked up uh, 4 for 23 against New Zealand. And uh, so she's got 23 innings on the bounce where she's taken at least one wicket, Mm. which is equal with the world record. She can also bat, although she hasn't had an opportunity to do so in this tournament. And probably their best fielder now, I think, Radha, she's quick across the ground she's a good catch so she's brought something you know beyond you know as, as a 19 year old with some energy she's brought something beyond just just what she does with the ball so those are the the plus sides to that team and and then as you say the the negative side is that there are days when they're just off the boil and they're nowhere near their best. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm going to sound like um, I'm, I'm incredibly positive today for once, but I, I like this Indian team uh, for different reasons again. <laughs> I know it's, it's unusual for me being so positive, but here we are. To take one negative, though, I suppose, and I don't mean this as a, as a reflection on the bowler herself, but Poonam Yadav excels because she's super accurate and she comes from a, a different trajectory and she bowls slower than anyone in world cricket. Well, Amelia Kerr showed that if you're super organised, you can prepare for that because you know roughly where the ball's going to be because she's a very, very accurate bowler. Amelia Kerr was moving all the way off to the offside and waiting for the ball to get to her and shoveling her over the top of short fine leg. Now, I wonder whether that'll be the approach taken by England and or South Africa in the semi-final when they come up against her, whether they'll be bold enough to take that on from the get-go rather than letting Purnam Yadav find her length because she, when she gets going, she's so hard to face, as we saw with those series of wrong she bowled to the Australian middle order when she routed them in the tournament opener. Um, as you say, Rada Yadav, so well bowled against New Zealand, so uh, she was the match winner there, really, uh, alongside Verma, who has, as you say, improved her top score in, in each innings this tournament. I wonder whether there's a stat there that if she can go through the whole competition with one score higher than the next, it's sort of a Andrew Sampson, Andy Zaltzman special, <laughs> that so defer to them on that but I mentioned before with South Africa that I like the fact that Van Niekerk hasn't made runs I like the fact that Mandana and Harmanpreet haven't made runs you know we uh, had we been having this conversation four weeks ago we would have said that Mandana is as likely as maybe two or three others in the comp to be the player of the tournament and she would have made 40 or 50 runs along the way, missed a game through illness and Harmanpreet's found a, a couple of creative ways to get herself out I think there was one instance where she managed to 
carve a ball that would have been signalled a wide to, to backward point, and I think she got run out another time. So in, in both cases, they've got they've got room to grow uh, in the elimination stage. So yeah, I, I can't wait for that England India game. It, it'll it'll be significant because if India get over the line, and it's India against Australia at the MCG in front of ninety one thousand people. I mean, we talk about the effect that their appearance at the World Cup final in fifty over cricket at Lords in two thousand and seventeen had. Imagine they made it to a T twenty final at the G against Australia in front of a, a world record crowd. I mean that that would have that would just have an untold benefit to how we'll see Indian cricket progress on, on the women's side of the ledger over the next generation. It, it, it must. As far as the teams that got knocked out go, Pakistan had that wonderful run chase against the West Indies but couldn't replicate that batting against England or South Africa. Sri Lanka basically still didn't have any batting after Chamari Adapatu. New Zealand were as disappointing as, as, as I think I predicted on the show a couple of weeks ago, so it didn't surprise me, but it did surprise others. And, and Bangladesh really battled. I thought that New Zealand-Bangladesh game was the low point of the tournament for me, where the Bangladeshis bowled out New Zealand for 91, bowled really well, fielded well, were, were all over New Zealand, and then couldn't get the chase together to actually knock off New Zealand as they should have and, and win that game. So th- that, was, that was kind of the low point of the, the quality of the cricket on the field. Yeah, and in those sides it got knocked out. I don't think New Zealand's campaign is quite as bad as as, uh, as, as it's been depicted in, in some quarters. Uh, by that I mean in the past they just they, they seem to have succumbed to pressure, whereas uh, this time around, notwithstanding just completely losing their way against Bangladesh, they found a way to hold their nerve that day. Like The, the, the more likely scenario after getting bowled out for 91 is that like the wheels fall off and that's tournament over but they they hung in there and they did the job with the ball and in the field some some sharp catches in that defence of 91 and against India they batted too slowly early on they lost their key players and still nearly found a way to get to the finish line so and even today against New Zealand against Australia rather um, uh, you know um, they've gone reasonably close there uh, in a game where Bates and and Devine uh, haven't sort of been the match winner so uh, look they're they're obviously deeply disappointed you could tell from Sophie Devine's commentary after play today but they can only look ahead to the World Cup in 50 over cricket this time next year which they're hosting Uh, and it'll probably be not the swan song for that golden generation nothing like that but these are uh, this is an excellent group of players who have been in tournament after tournament over the last decade without making a global final. So um, they can sort of reorient their attention at 50 over cricket, which I actually have been better at in the last few years. Uh, and, and maybe next year we might see them deliver as they should on the global stage the way that we expect them to, being such amazing players in the Big Bash League and the Super League. We just think that one's, at one point it must, must all click and look, who knows, maybe next year. A word for Thailand, who... Played, I guess, as we expected them to. Struggled to match it with the bat. They haven't played their last match, but I thought it was encouraging that in the three games we have seen them play, they managed to pick up early wickets in mm. in all of those games, uh, managed to at least match it with the ball and, and in, the, in the field for periods, even if the, the quality of other sides eventually told as you would expect that it would. Yeah, I just think that like the way they, the way they bowl and the way they field will mean that they'll make life difficult for a lot of teams in at the next level down but they'll continue to make these tournaments because they're going to keep teams to a low score more often than not so the question is going to be where does their growth come 
uh, with the bat over the next two years? And that's probably a 50-over question as much as it is a 20-over question because they seem to lack that nous with the bat. Turning the strike over, for example, they don't do that particularly well. They don't clear the pickets. So they have to find a formula that works. And look, maybe it will be in the 50-over game where they have more time in the middle and, and, and more opportunities. And of course, that qualification process is taking place at the moment. So yeah, it's a bit of a watch this space with them. But uh, yeah, I'm certain we'll see them at the World T20 again soon or the T20 World Cup because yeah, their bowling's very good uh, and, and teams aren't going to make that many runs against them. And there was an important farewell at the end of the round. Uh, Sri Lanka signing off with a win over Bangladesh to make themselves feel a bit better on the way out the door but Shashikala Sirawadana who's been a fixture of that Sri Lankan team for mm. many many years um, played 199 games for Sri Lanka over the time she's decided it's time to call it quits yeah so uh, one game short of bringing up of joining the 200 club reminds me of when Billy Brownless had his career ended on 198 games well Ben Hilfenhaus took 99 test wickets and never got the chance to bring up his 100 but no what a triumph of stick to like just the fact that she's been there for so long she made her international debut in March 2003 which was the, the month I started university to think that that whole time she's been playing for Sri Lanka in, in one format or another she ended up taking over 100 wickets in one day international cricket the only Sri Lanka woman to do that, finishes with 124 scalps in that format 77 wickets in T20 fair an average of 20 Then she made more than 3,000 runs with the bat across the formats which is no mean feat when you consider how tough it's been to be a batter in that Sri Lankan lineup. when you know really they've been so reliant on one player Chamari Adipadu but uh, yeah congratulations on, on a long career and I love the fact that she signed off with a, with a four wicket haul against Bangladesh to win that dead rubber and it was a dead rubber I incorrectly reported that um, the winner of that game would automatically qualify for the next World T20 or T20 World Cup I keep getting my jargon wrong there but that's not the case would you believe they're only um, qualifying four teams out of this tournament so previously the top eight went through the, the next time around automatically and they qualified the next mm. the last two teams to, so in this case it was Bangladesh and Thailand that came through the qualification tournament well next time uh, uh, four will come from this comp four will come from rankings and, and then two will come from that so in other words um, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh or sorry Sri Lanka will, will still have to um, have to perform in order to guarantee their progress to the next comp in two years time but um, I digress the, the, the key point here is that um, uh, they, they were able to sign off in style today Alright Adam that has been the T20 World Cup so far the semi-finals and finals to come but now on the show it is time for the moment that you wait for and that I wait for every <laughs> week that's right it is Nerd Pledge the game of nerds the game of pledges the game where people get on our patron page and send us a curiously specific amount of money that relates to a cricketing number that we have to deduce and can i start the segment today adam can i start with a moment of joy can we sound the trumpets can we get a bugle of victory <laughs> uh, and can we parade in together hand in hand with petals being sprinkled over their heads margaret tyson and ben larson i I asked a few weeks ago, I, I cried out, a cry in the darkness, a creed occur. I said, somebody please give us a 214 that is not Greg fucking Blewett. Somebody please <laughs> give us a 214 that is Victor Trumper. And lo, it has happened. 
Ben Larson and Margaret Tyson both uh, he- heeded my call and have signed up with the 214 and specifically made it known that this is for the great Victor Trumper. Uh, his highest right. score in Test cricket from one of the great Test matches, the Adelaide Test of 1911 against South Africa. Can you tell how relieved I am? Oh, I can. Um, obviously, you've, you've been busy. Uh, can Tell me more. What have you learnt from uh, Ben and Margaret? And, and thank you both for, for, for coming to the aid of Jeff here because he has been talking about it quite a lot. I have. Well, I just wanted somebody to put in Victor Trumper's highest score. You know, one of Australia's great artists with the bat, um, the master of the sticky dog, the, the man who made more runs when it was difficult than he did when it was easy. Um, in some ways, parallels with Steve Smith there. But in... In 1911, they played a timeless test match, Adam. It was South Africa's first ever tour of Australia. And South Africa got pumped 4-1. But the one test that they won was this incredible match at the Adelaide Oval. South Africa made 482 batting first. I I love some of the names in this scorecard. There were tons from Billy Zulch and Tip Snook. (laughs) <laughs> ah, good old Tip Snook. Uh, Billy Zulch was a, you know, likely did himself in. He euphemistically died in bed after a nervous breakdown at 37, mm. but he made 100 in that innings. Australia all but drew level. They made 465, and that was when Trumper made his 214. This was a, a fine Australian team. Charlie Calloway in that team, Vern Ransford, Warren Bardsley all made 50s. Warwick Armstrong was in that team batting at number eight. So then in the third innings of this timeless test with scores nearly level, South Africa make 360. There's a ton to the great Aubrey Faulkner who also made 60 in the first innings. So then Australia need 378 uh, to win. Charlie McCartney was opening. Now this is of course the great Charlie McCartney we've discussed on the show, the the first man to make 100 before lunch on the opening day of a test match. Uh, The guy who made 345 runs in a day against Nottingham, which I think was was the most runs ever made in a first class day for years and years. Maybe Brian Lara beat it when he made the 500. Um, Charlie Keller, as Charlie McCartney had to go down the order, he was injured or sick. So he went all the way down to number nine where he made a first ball duck and Trumper had to open. He made 28, but then there were half centuries happening. Armstrong nearly made one. Uh, Callaway, Clem Hill made a 50. Uh, McCartney came out and batted at nine. Tibby Cotter at number 10 made 36 not out. And Australia lost their final wicket on 339. They fell 39 runs short in a timeless test match. The top scorer of the match, Trumper, 214. One of the great innings, one of the great matches, one of the great series, and, and one of the great nerd pledges to send through $2.14 for Victor Trumper. Outstanding, Jeff. Nothing to add there. You've, uh, you've, uh, you, you've absolutely nailed it. And thanks again to Ben and Margaret. <laughs> Lovely. Really appreciate that. So if you're confused about what we're talking about, Patreon is the thing that lets people support the show. They go to the website, they sign up, and they can send us an amount of dollars per episode, and they do that in a format um, that that relates to cricket. Now, Jason Atkinson is one who's signed up this week with an old faithful number, Adam, uh, one that, that you can tell people about in relation to a another podcast you've done. Jason Atkinson has come through <laughs> 213. Well, yeah, look, 213's... Normally, Elise Perry's innings under lights at, the, at North Sydney Oval, the ground we were talking about just a moment ago in the Ashes Test of 2017. Of course, the Edgebeston 1999 World Cup semi-final tie between Australia and South Africa. But it's also Debashish Mahanti's cap number in Test cricket. Now, um, we spent a bit of time looking at his uh, career in a podcast I 
uh, host about um, going back through time, the greatest season that was, and looking at the 1999 World Cup. And he was the man who was hooping the ball around corners uh, when uh, India routed England on that fateful day uh, in the 1999 World Cup. Of course, England losing to India on the same day that Zimbabwe beat South Africa meant they didn't qualify for the Super Sixes, and the uh, so England got bundled out on, on that day or that weekend. And the following day was when the uh, when the album, uh, or sorry, the the single. The, the World Cup single was released, so England didn't uh, make it to that point in the tournament when the World Cup song was even on the charts. So, uh, so uh, that, that's uh, what most people remember that game for. But uh, Debashish Mahanti was was crucial to that, and we barely saw him again. So he was a bit of a um, a, a bit of a, a brief uh, but important. Uh, star in the Indian side, but that's the only thing mm. I could really come up with. It was two thirteen that didn't relate to things we've already looked at, Jeff. A, a cricketing my Sharona, if you will. Um, yes, and, and we haven't talked about him enough on this show. <laughs> we have to revisit one from last week. Jackson Stewart uh, oh, sent yeah. through three dollars and six cents, three oh six. We thought that might be Alan Border's one day international average of thirty point six. It was, in fact, the highest first class score ever made by Simon Cattage. We absolutely. Botch this. I mean, how do yeah. we not get that? I, I feel quite embarrassed about that. Cat, of course, has been so good to both of us. And I remember well that incredible season uh, in 2007 8, wasn't it? When when Simon went from, you know, sort of well outside the test team, but um, forced his way back in by making, was it 1,500 runs in the first class season? Something mm, crazy like I that, which so. was uh, the high point was a, a triple 100 and uh, got, New Z- got New South Wales rather into that Shield final, which they subsequently won. So, with him at the helm, I think he was captain by that point. So, um, thank you, uh, Jackson Stewart, for uh, informing us on Twitter that we got it wrong last week. And of course, any of your nerd pledges, if we have got them wrong, uh, just drop us a tweet or jump on the, or better still, go on the Patreon page where you've already signed up and get a direct message to us there. Yeah, you can direct message us and that's the, that's the bat phone. That's how you get through. So thank you, Jason Atkinson, for signing up. Adam Soffer has sent through 159. Uh, 159 is what Rishabh Pant made at the SCG when uh, India beat Australia. Well, they didn't win that yeah. match. They drew that match, but uh, in the series they won a couple of years ago. That's the best I had. I had Rishabh Pant. Uh, England beat India by an innings and 159 runs at Lords a couple of years ago in, in the least competitive test match I've ever covered, um, which says something. <laughs> um, India just did not show up for any session of the match, but it's more likely to be a tribute uh, to Rishabh Pant. Uh, so uh, if, if that was the case, Adam Soffer, do let us know. And if it wasn't, uh, tell us as well. But if there's something better than that for 159, well, we haven't thought of it yet. If he does let us know, it'll be a Soffer tell. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'd like to have the bed made up, please. Uh, James Roda has come through with 177. Uh, the first thing that struck me was Elisa Healy's shirt number is 77. So if she's standing there by herself, she's 177. Yes, and that would be appropriate uh, given that we're in the uh, Women's World Cup as we record this. So I don't mind that at all for James Rudder. Well, I also had a quick scan and saw that Gus Fraser claimed 177 test scalps. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, the, 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 the boss of Middlesex... Uh, these days, and keeping with the Middlesex theme, that was Andrew Strauss's highest test score. That uh, was also Darren Lehman's highest test score. So together at last, Andrew Strauss and Darren Lehman, of course, they share so much in common, those two. So, um, well, steep, steep hairdressing bills is the main thing they yeah, share. Yeah, that, 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 that's probably the main thing. Um, but yes, uh, Gus Fraser, Andrew Strauss, Darren Lehman, Elisa Healy, it, it might be one of those, it might not. James Ryder, thanks for your contribution. And I'd like to send a salute to Marky, who's been waiting for a long time. He sent through a 105 a long 
time ago and we had a number of guesses but didn't quite get any of them right and then I mislaid a message from him and eventually I tracked it down and and his clue was um, I tried to give you two different pledges but patron wouldn't let me do it and then then it, then it clicked then I realized and I went and looked up Jaleep Mendes made twin tons of 105 in each innings in Chennai or Madras as it was then in Sri Lanka's first ever test match against India back in hmm. 1982 so Marky's attempt to give us 105 twice was in fact a, a salute to the twin 105s, the highest really twin scores in a match. I, I would just add that on 105, I made a blue the other week I want to correct the record for. I just instinctively said 105 Alex Stewart when Marky's first uh, message came through, and that was wrong. Um, he made 107 at the MCG in the Boxing Day Test of 98, but he did make 105, and this is where I got confused. He made 105 in his 100th Test match. So uh, right. Alex Stewart and Mike Atherton um, played their 100th Test matches together against the West Indies. In the, in the summer of 2000 and, and Alec at home um, made 105 against the Windies uh, in his 100th test so um, not related to the 107 that, that was at the MCG but yes a chance to correct the record now that we've got 105 in again well, much like the Trumper test, that was a magnificent test match, Sri Lanka's first against India. Sri Lanka made 346. India replied with 566. Gavaska made a big 100. So Sri Lanka were 220 behind and they went, you know what? Fuck it. They just went to town. So Roy Diaz made 97. Uh, Dilip Mendes made his second 105. Anura Ranasinghe whacked 77 in quick time. And so from 220 behind, they went to 175 in front by the time <laughs> they were bowled out. And it was late on the last... Day. So India had 53 minutes plus a mandatory 20 overs to try to chase 175. And India went, you know what? Let's go for it. So they pushed everybody up. Kapil Dev went up to number four. Gavaskar ended up dropping down to number nine, just promoting everyone ahead of him saying, go for it. Just get it, go out there and have a tonk. And they went out and tonked away until they'd lost those seven wickets and Gavaskar eventually came out to block out the last few overs to make sure that they didn't get bowled out and lose the test match. So um, that was a, a, a magnificent match in which Jaleep Mendes made those twin tons. Ms. Burrell Hark's the only other guy to make matching twin hundreds with 101 in each innings, Triscothic made a 105 and a 107. So uh, a couple have got close, but Jaleep Mendes is still the top of the pops. That's a good one. Thanks, Marky. Thanks for being persistent as well. If, if we do get it wrong, as I say, you can always hit us up on Patreon and we can revisit it. We enjoy doing that. It's good going back to the back to the well if we stuff it up the first time. And thanks to everyone for being part of the, the Patreon game. Ben Larson, Margaret Tyson, Jason Atkinson, Adam Soffer, James Rodder. And Marky, great to have you part of it. Yes, if you want to sign up on Patreon to send us a nerd pledge, go to patreon.com slash the final word and you'll spell patron P-A-T-R-E-O-N for reasons best known to the inventors of that particular website. Let's take a break and we'll be back with the second half on the final word. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, we're proud to continue our association with Wisden Cricket Monthly. We love the Wisden brand. We love the Wisden Almanac. We love the Night Watchman. And we absolutely love being part of the monthly magazine. And as a consequence, we're proud to continue to give you the most basic offer there is. You click a link and you get yourself almost half price off six editions of the magazine, a digital version of the magazine for 10 of your Australian dollars or six of your Great, Brit Great British pounds. 
Yes, I, I've just watched an episode of the new season of Better Call Saul. Uh, the episode title is 50% Off, uh, <laughs> in which uh, Saul Goodman offers 50% off to new clients for his lawyering business. And trouble ensues, it must be said. Um, <laughs> trouble will not ensue from this offer. It hasn't ensued from people taking it up. All that's happened is they've got good quality cricket reading delivered to their various devices. They click the link, the special uh, final word link, and they get that discount for what we think is the best cricket magazine in the world. This month, the cover story is their special feature about the lineage of English batsmanship. If you're interested in batting and how it works, you can go from the golden age to today, from Ranjit Singhji through CB Fry, uh, all the rest of them along the way. They've spoken to Gooch, Boycott, Atherton, Stewart, Ollie Pope, and uh, they've got a 14-page feature about how the batsmen of their day went about their craft. There's also the Wisdom's Gear of the Year Award, which is not something that you buy in the bathroom of an RSL. It's <laughs> about the kit. It's about the cricket kit that they, they get in the nets, they get the photo um, studio out, they do massive photo shoots, they try all the, all the kit out and see what they like most. Enjoying yourself over there? Oh, I'm just, I'm just thinking about the alternate universe. We went and promoted the gear of the year in the magazine. It might be a very different program. Uh, we just talked We'd about probably make quite a lot more money. Quite, quite possibly. Um, if, I won't say if you want to sponsor us. But anyway, um, uh, the uh, Misbah Al Haq interview, a big feature interview with the Czar of Pakistani cricket. We were just talking to him about him a minute ago on Nerd Pledge. So have a read of that. Mackay and Teeny's talking to Dan Gallen, a mate of ours. So I'm sure that's going to be a riveting read. Um, Andrew Miller has taken a look at Joss Butler. He describes him as too big to fail, um, given that we're talking a lot about the United States financial system at the moment due to the fact that it's the presidential election i'm sure there's a couple of neat segues there jeff you stood in for me this week because i was busy with you know being a dad for the first time and wrote the the column uh, in in my in my name if you like but you were looking at new zealand cricket Yep, um, writing about the selection of Scott Kugeline and the moral minefield that, that that turns into when New Zealand cricket keep going on with it without actually addressing the problems behind doing so. Um, you can have a read of that in the mag. And uh, Lawrence Booth is chatting to one of India's most influential but often forgotten cricketers, say my notes, but the best part is that they've left off who it is. So <laughs> that is the most <laughs> could perfect be, segue for uh, that Well, well look, if I, if, I, if I have a mind, it'll be Debashish Mahanti will be the man that Lawrence is... Uh, <laughs> talking to this week just to give me a bit of that an update that was not set up on where his career went uh, and to round it off we've got Ben Fogues who's going to be in Sri Lanka with the English team back in business I'm very very pleased to hear the prettiest man in cricket is going to have his test cap dusted off in Sri Lanka later in March he gives a wicket keeping masterclass and Rich Evans looks at the business of club cricket now the crucial information is how you get this thing bit.ly it's straightforward bit.ly bit.ly forward slash WCM final. It's in the show notes if you want to click it there, but bit.ly forward slash WCM final. Click the link, support the magazine, and in turn support the final word. We love being part of the Wisdom Cricket Monthly family uh, as we continue to be in the magazine month after month. They keep having us and they keep being part of the show, and we love them for it, Jeff. So uh, get on there now and get your six editions for six quid or ten bucks. Do it right away. Next up on the show is Daniel Norcross's uh, missive about what has been happening in World War II. Okay, team, it's a double update this week. I'm sorry I didn't make last week. I was uh, distracted by the Women's World T20. 
So I'm going to take you back. It's going to be this week and last week in our World War II timeline update. Early last Wednesday morning, around the time England beat Thailand, the newly freed French were celebrating Bastille Day by publicly humiliating Nazi collaborators and simultaneously inventing a massive history of French resistance. Basically, much like the crowd at Headingley 1981, if all the French people who claimed to be in the resistance had been in the resistance, the German feat of occupation would be the second most remarkable victory of the underdog in recorded history. Still just behind that Headingley comeback, of course. Meanwhile, the Russians have just invaded Poland and Rommel has had his head fractured by strafing from an RAF plane in Normandy. The Battle of the Hedgerows, in which the Americans used napalm for the first time, was won around 2pm last Wednesday and with it, the Allies got their hands on the crucial town of Saint-Lô in Normandy. Unconnected, but on the same day, Japan's political and military leader Tojo Hideki resigned. This is big news. Churchill, Stalin and Roosevelt are going nowhere, but Hideki will end up dead in prison in 1948. At around 6pm last Wednesday occurred one of the most famous plots to assassinate Hitler. Masterminded, if you like, by Klaus von Stauffenberg. Thinking a briefcase full of explosives placed under a table at which Hitler was having a meeting later in the day would do the trick, he blithely buggered off to Berlin and prepared to form a new government. Unfortunately, he didn't plan on one of Hitler's aides moving the briefcase to the other side of the room. Result, angry and mildly injured Hitler. Ah, and a bunch of very executed conspirators within 24 hours. Over in the Far East, the US recaptured Guam from the Japanese at about 10pm last Wednesday. Wednesday was a very busy day. The Japanese had held it since 1941. At midnight last Thursday, the Red Army liberated the Majdanek death camp in Poland, providing incontrovertible evidence of Nazi concentration camp atrocities. And late last Thursday, just towards the back end of February, Anne Frank was betrayed and sent to a death camp. Early on Friday morning, the Allies stormed into southern France. It's pretty bleak for the next week or two as Russians and Polish resistance work together against Hitler's total war, while the Allies encounter futile but fierce opposition on the Western Front. The only guys living it up right now are the German soldiers in the Italian northern lakes, whom everyone has forgotten about. They're skinny-dipping, eating prosciutto and hanging around in beautiful Romanesque villas. Everywhere else is carnage. And so, folks, we've entered the last year of the war. It's March. Well, it's September 1944, but it's March where we are. The end is in sight, but there will be plenty of fighting to be done and quite a few setbacks along the way. On Saturday, bloviating pomposity Charles de Gaulle was inexplicably allowed to lead the liberating Allied forces into Paris. After being put up in a Mayfair hotel for three years, he's done nothing except complain about English cooking and his hatred of tea. He's about to find that Parisian restaurants have run out of steak haché, citron pressé and a fine burgundy. Late on Saturday night, Hitler ordered his troops to leave Greece for the final time, but not before smashing the old mandolin. The expected stimulus to the local economy from increased tourism will take around 25 years to materialise. At the time of recording, the Allies are involved in the doomed Operation Market Garden. No doubt inspired by Lord Cardigan at Balaclava and Douglas Haig at pretty much anywhere he found himself, Field Marshal Montgomery has cooked up a bad plan to create a bridgehead over the Rhine to facilitate the invasion of northern Germany. It doesn't go well. By 1am tomorrow, the British would have suffered 1,200 casualties and 6,600 troops captured by the Germans. Nijmegen and Eindhoven are liberated, though, so it wasn't all bad. 
definitely not as bad as the film A Bridge Too Far, which it sadly inspired and bored the life out of children four times a year on Saturday nights from the mid-70s for the rest of the 20th century. I mean, and at the end of it, we lose. What's the point? Fans, though, of late 70s BBC drama Secret Army, the genuinely brilliant three-series Brussels-based nerve shredder, patchily satirised by Hello Hello, will be delighted to know that Brussels was liberated at 6am yesterday morning. Bernard Hepton can finally leave that Gestapo cell. Not such great news for female Nazi collaborators who will have their heads shaved en masse. In the hours before that, it's all been happening in Eastern Europe. The Ruskies entered Bucharest just before midnight on Saturday. The Soviet-Finnish war, which everyone except the Finns had assumed was over years ago, finally comes to an end at around 2am on Sunday, and the Bulgarians break Italy's multiple records for weak resistance and rapid flip-floppery by surrendering to the Germans within 24 hours of war being declared on them, and then, in turn, declaring war on Nazi Germany before the day is out. Serious skills from the Bulgars. The Turks, though, remain less obliging, though not particularly combative by this stage. At 6am on Sunday morning, the seemingly terminal decline of the Luftwaffe resulted in blackouts in Britain no longer being enforced for the first time in three years, or since the beginning of December in our world. Things are brightening up. However, at 10am on Sunday morning, German V2 rockets obliterated various bits of London. Think of it a bit like Storm Jorge. Meanwhile, Hitler Himmler in a measure that might be described as both panic-stricken and egregiously spiteful, has ordered the families of deserting soldiers to be rounded up and killed. The Poles are having a tricky time. With Soviets close by but not being entirely helpful, they're relying on the Allies to drop them supplies as they ramp up resistance to the Germans in Warsaw. By 11am tomorrow morning, the Germans would have crushed their resistance and killed a quarter of a million Poles. Fans of cowardice, of which I include myself, will be chilled to know that around 2am this morning, the Germans will begin a recruitment drive to enlist all adult males aged between 16 and 60. Not sure my scoliosis would have got me out of that one. And finally, one of the most laborious hard-fought wins of the Pacific War began this morning at 4am as the US Marines landed on Peleliu. The Japanese will resist until around 6pm on Wednesday. The countdown to VE Day is upon us, one and all. Set your watches for around 10am on the 22nd of March. But before that, we've got the Battle of the Bulge to look forward to, along with some really horrible stuff out in the East. Still, no doubt the goal will finally have found someone to make him a seafood crepe. Soldier on team, we're nearly there. Thank you to Daniel Norcross for sending that through and uh, thanks to CBUS Super who support the show and, and most importantly, we've got a new segment out of them, the CBUS Super Performer. It's, it's, a neat, it's so neat, it just slots in perfectly. Uh, a, a couple of candidates for the CBUS Super Performer. I wanted to really put up Fargana Hoke Pinky of Bangladesh when she was playing against Australia the other night, the look was just mint. Running around the field with Pinky on the back of her shirt is, is one thing. It was just I was singing the Pinky in the Brain music for the whole night. <laughs> but also particularly while fielding in the dark at Monica Oval, 
still with the sunglasses on right into the night. Never took them off the whole time. And I thought <laughs> that, that was just, it was a beautiful combo as it all came together. They were really, they were real Mark War areas, mid-90s, walking through an airport wearing his Oakley wraparounds or something like that after Australia had won a test match in three days and they'd had two nights on the tonk, two days playing golf and flying to the next destination to decimate their next opponent. And you, you see Mark War just strolling through the to the baggage carousel, um, sunglasses on indoors, you know, with an Oakley cap on or something like that. So uh, I did enjoy that as well. Uh, I would say, though, that I have been frustrated in this tournament at the way in which the names are all over the shop with the subcontinental sides. This is too earnest for this segment, but I'm just going to lay a marker here. I don't like the fact that um, there are multiple interpretations of how we're going to say the name across the broadcast and the cricket websites and even the, the, the ICC's website. Uh, so uh, it, with the men's game, you wouldn't have it. We have a consistent way of saying the player's name and we respect the culture, obviously. In the case of many Pakistani and Bangladeshi players, you identify them by their first name instead of their second name and, and so on. Um, and I hope that um, that's been drawn into focus and, you know, we saw some... Um, we saw, you know, we've seen some scorecard silliness in the tournament so far where I think the, the Kerr sisters weren't, um, weren't uh, distinguished. Uh, they just had Kerr for them uh, consecutively on, on the scorecard, which, which didn't help when New Zealand were playing. Um, and there was another game where in England's uh, team, they, they put Tammy Beaumont for, instead of just Beaumont. Not that there was two Beaumonts playing for England, but the more important mm. point here, of course, being that, yeah, let, let's, let's pay some attention. Let's She's get also to know these Tamsin players. On, on some of the TV She is, um, yeah, yeah. Stuff, yeah. So, yeah. yeah but we can do better we, on we this. We like to mix it up. As much <laughs> as I enjoy saying Pinky on the back of the shirt, we, we can do better collectively. Pinky and the brain. That's Adam. The, the other nominee for the super performer would have to be Ravindra Jadeja for the... Oh, yeah. Fucking ridiculous mm. catch that he took in the test match. Neil Wagner playing a hook shot to Muhammad Shami out into the deep. And, and Jadeja's at square leg, not quite deep, but maybe two-thirds of the way back. And the ball's going over his head. And he just sort of floats upwards, floats facing the, the batsman, but floats up in the air, puts out his left hand, wafts it around and somehow plucks this catch from behind him. Uh, while floating and then and then just lands beautifully it, it's one of one of the best catches you'll ever see yeah I, I share that view it reinforces that sort of point we've made before Jeff I think on the podcast and certainly when I do my spots with Harsha Bogle like how is it the case that Jadeja doesn't play in every Indian side in every format he, he sort of feels like um, he, he's an underutilised asset given that he can do what he does with the ball in the field with the bat um, yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways we've had this conversation about Glenn Maxwell too, but um, yes, uh, that, that broader worth being shown uh, this week, even if it was in a losing effort, um, New Zealand have pants them, uh, a 2-0 drubbing uh, after performing so poorly against Australia on that tour. Um, they've, uh, they've, they've, they've uh, hosted the best team in the world and, and given them a flogging. And the Seabus non-performer, non-super, non-performer, <laughs> I suppose you've got to give him a break because um, Virat Kohli makes so many runs across all formats all the time and is probably the most overworked player in the world. So he's, he's allowed to have a bad tour, but went to New Zealand, didn't cross 50 in any of the formats across the T20s, the one days or the test matches. Um, and uh, New Zealand have, have knocked them over in quick time in a couple of test matches. I, I know. The way, it, it capped a pretty ordinary week for Virat. Well, it depends how you interpret it, really, but having his name absolutely butchered by Donald Trump in that rally, uh, that, um, that hype rally that Modi 
held at the new cricket stadium in Hyderabad, isn't it? Uh, that um, everyone focused on Su Chin. Tendulkar, but um, Virat, or was it Vorat, Cole? Either way, um, he, he made a v, meal. I of, think it was Virat Kohli. Yes. So. Suchin Tendulkar. Yeah. I wonder if um, I, I, I wonder if that means that, uh, that, that, that Donald Trump will receive one of those birthday tweets from Sachin Tendulkar the next time that he, when he turns like 87 or however old Trump is um, uh, next year, um, whether he'll be, because that's the one thing that we can depend on from Tendulkar these days is that whatever else he's doing, he finds time to send a birthday tweet most days to another celebrity. Every morning when he gets up, he checks his Excel spreadsheet of birthdays <laughs> and then he types out a tweet himself and he sends it off. So the, the only thing it made me think of was that Simpsons episode with with Carl with Homer's assistant who leaves him his final speech all of the big words have been spelt phonetically <laughs> that was that was Trump reading out the um, the names on on the teleprompter they must have been spelt out with hyphens su chin uh, so, so anyway, look, the, the point is that uh, 9.23 might be roughly what Virat Kohli averaged across formats during the New Zealand tour, but 9.23% is the average return from SIBA <laughs> Super over the last 35 years. <laughs> That's right. They manage over $50 billion of members' money that is uh, a billion, that's $50 for each of the billion people in India who would have been disappointed by Virat Kohli's poor returns in that series. So that's what CBUS can do for you. To find out if they're the right super fund for you, you can go to cbussuper.com.au and get a PDS. And uh, remember that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. Uh, Jeff, to, to quickly whip through the lightning round, I can hear downstairs my parents are at my house talking to my partner's parents, which can only sing, signal bad news given they've never met before. So we might go quite briskly uh, through the lightning round today. Uh, Australia lost their first one day. Um, can you just I, take the recorder down and just record that conversation? I think it'll be no. better than anything we can do. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid of where, where it might lead. I'm, I'm relying our on pat- Rachel to look after this. Need to know. Put it up as a patron-only thing on the subscriber page. <laughs> People want to know, Adam. This, yeah. I would pay to see this. I will yeah. sign up to our own page and pay you money to hear this conversation. At least they've got the new grandchild to keep them occupied. Uh, yeah, Australia, they've lost their, the first of three one-days. I know one-day cricket isn't really that important right Right now, we're at the start of the cycle. I remember talking to Pat Howard four years ago when he was the boss of Australian cricket, and he said that the first year of the four-year cycle is when you try and iron out the kinks, you try and work out where you're going, you try and work out who might be able to be in a World Cup team four years after, or I guess now three years later. Um, so mm. I, that's probably where Australia are at. This, this means more to South Africa, I would argue, given that it's on home soil, the stinker of a World Cup. They had a new regime under Quinton de Kock, but yeah, Australia were comprehensively beaten in the first one day, which prompted Michael Clark, Jeff, to say that Aaron Finch and, and Tim Payne should be replaced, I think he said at the end of this year, um, by Pat Cummins as an all-format captain. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't sort of see that coming, but glad to see Michael Clark can still create a headline um, when he decides to offer comment because, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's, I guess, the prerogative of a former captain. Finally, I'm on board with Michael Clark about something. It's been too long, Michael. Uh, let's get behind it. <laughs> I, I don't know about all formats because I think Pat Cummins will, will probably break if that happens. But, yes. but, but I like that I'm saying he should be test captain and Michael Clark saying, you know what, fuck it. I'll see your test captain and I'll raise you all formats. <laughs> all right, Michael, all in. 
all in. Let's see, let's see your hand. I, I, I'm I'm behind this. Yeah, I, I think the fact that I think uh, the, the point was made overnight that uh, by Robert Craddock uh, on radio that Pat Cummins hasn't captained a team since, since he was 13. And my response to that, of course, is that bowlers are discriminated against in terms of their opportunities to be captain. So that's right. Uh, so it, it all comes back to the broader thinking uh, around um, bowlers being skipper. If I had my way. Uh, Ravichandran Ashwin would be captain of India in all three formats due to his liberal mm-hmm. approach to running out the non-striker, which there's been a lot of back and forth on Twitter about this during the week. We, we, we should really make him the patron saint of the Mancad movement because if not for Ashwin, w- w- this might not have... I'm not just talking about the IPL last year, of course, when he when he affected a, a run out of... It was... Mm, trying to remember who it was. Wasn't Thuramane? Was Just Butler? Uh, no, he, this was this, that was a uh, he in, in a game in Australia some years ago, uh, a neutral uh, fixture in a World Series Cup type affair. He ran out the non-striker. I can't remember who it was. And then uh, Saywag and Tendulkar colluded to have the appeal withdrawn. I, I, I had a look at the clip on social media this week, but alas, um, uh, I don't think that bowlers being captain uh, again at getting to fashion as quick as running out the non-striker is. So certainly, if if we have anything to do with it, Jeff. Uh, Sri Lanka have just finished a clean sweep over the West Indies, 3-0 in a, a one-day series that's happening in Sri Lanka. They just played out a, a bit of a classic in the third game of that. Sri Lanka made 307. The West Indies got to 301 for nine at the end of their 50 overs. They fell six runs short. Um, there's been some great work from Avishka Fernando, their young opener, who we saw exciting things from during the World Cup. Um, Dimuth Karunaratna is still making runs as the skipper of that side, of course, the, uh, the the man, the great man behind the pool party, the uh, the great mind behind <laughs> Sri Lanka's aquatic program that's really turned this team around. That's behind the clean sweep, behind the whitewash, is the fact that they've been doing a lot of laps in the pool. Uh, Kusal Mendes has been <laughs> making runs in that series as well. And then Shy Hope's been continuing to do what he did in, in the World Cup and in the last couple of years, making runs at the top of the order. So it was a bit of a bat fest, um, but, but a, a classic match to finish on. West Indies a bit unlucky to end up winless at the end of that one-day series. They've got some T20s yet to come. Uh, good to see cricket this week in both Bangladesh and Pakistan. So in Pakistan, of course, the PSL is is uh, is firing on all cylinders. Heaps of uh, different bits and pieces coming through on social media. I, I found last night a, a lovely image of the mascot from the Moulton side is an absolute dead ringer for Robert <laughs> Di Pietro So if you, if you genuinely like is, <laughs> you, you sent me that with the, with the tag, and I thought, oh yeah, this will be close. And then I opened it, and it's just Dipper. He's just is Dipper. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, a childhood hero of mine, five-time premiership player. Shannon Gill, a friend of ours, has been litigating the case for some time now that they should award retrospectively Norm Smith medals from Ron Barassi's first grand final, 1955, all the way up to 1978, which was the last year before it was formally struck in the 79 grand final. And who was the best on ground in the 1978 grand final? Robert Di Pietro So let's keep the momentum moving on that. Uh, and in Bangladesh, uh, Zimbabwe uh, were playing this week as well. So good to see uh, Zimbabwe by playing a bit more international cricket this year compared to last year, Jeff. They did get absolutely pumped uh, in the first one day over there, but they've got more to come as well uh, as that tour unrolls. And uh, last week we didn't talk about the Sheffield Shield because we were recording on the third day of those matches, but it ended up being a, a classic round. All three games went into the last session on the last day. Uh, Tassie managed to win a tense run chase on the last day. Tim Payne, who should never be replaced as Australian team captain, uh, did most of the business in the last innings with the 
about there in, in chasing down 235. He was not out at the end on 48. Um, so that was an important one. Uh, Cameron Green. Uh, so he's, what, 20, 21? Uh, and he's made two big hundreds this year. Uh, he took a seven for last year. Of course, he's uh, he's big, he's tall, he hits the ball a long way and he bowls fast. It can't be long, Jeff, before he's going to start featuring in Australian squads. I think we said back in October or November or whatever it was when he made his first century this season that uh, the consensus seems to be from those who are, have seen these uh, these players emerge quickly before, let's take it easy. Let's not get carried away. He's going to have a long career. There is no rush. There's no need to force him into the rigours of international cricket quite yet. But it is encouraging that a that a strong, big, strapping all-rounder is coming through and, and presumably will get his opportunity to at least to get a small taste of what it is to be an international cricketer sooner rather than later. South Australia very nearly held off New South Wales in the second innings. They were trying to bat out a draw, were eventually bowled out in that fourth innings for 269. Trent Copeland, four for 60. He went past 300 first-class wickets for New South Wales. Um, one of those fine performers who probably hasn't got what was his due. And, and Queensland, a similar story, were trying to bat out a draw against Victoria and fell just short. Joe Burns made 135 and nearly got them over the line, uh, but couldn't quite and he was eventually dismissed by Peter Siddle who will have a national holiday commemorating him on November 25th this year. Which we really need to return to in the next couple of weeks. We have to really get the momentum going behind that campaign. Just hearing the words there, Tim Payne, Joe Burns I know Nathan Lyon was playing for New South Wales last week as well it won't be long before we can start a bit of selection speculation ahead of the Bangladesh Tour in June. So another shield round coming up this weekend I think I'm right in saying so that'll add to the volume around that and and we'll recap it next week. And I think that is all we have time for on the show today. It's it's been it's been wild. It's been a ride. It's been a, a turning point in both of our lives. I feel that we've discovered both America and ourselves. Yep, yep. Um, well, look, it's been it's 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 covered a lot of ground. Uh, it's covered multiple countries. It's covered both sexes, if you like, considering we've been deeply involved in the women's and men's game nerd pledge we've gone back to uh, the 1940s uh, look we, we, we couldn't have gone to really any other corner so I'm, I'm happy with our output today and I, and I hope if you've listened all the way to the end that you're happy with our output as well this has been the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. As always, thanks to Bad Producer, the production company that gets us out every week, and DC, who edits the show without fail. Thanks to Seabus Super for supporting the show and Wisdom Cricket Monthly. You can get their links in the show notes. And thanks most particularly and especially to everyone who supports the show on Patreon. We've been putting our uh, subscriber-only video updates up there. The new episodes are going up there, and that is the main thing that keeps this show going going week to week, having the support of people out there in the world. That's patron.com slash the final word. We'll be back with you next week. We'll be recording on Mondays throughout March and releasing on Tuesdays or Wednesdays, depending on when the show gets put together. And uh, you can listen out for us then through March as we go on and deeper into the year. Final word, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Good night. Bye. I had to go about it.